This week has been one of those weeks of ups and downs for me. Uh, This last uh, uh, Tuesday, many of you know that I uh, defended my dissertation uh, before some professors at Southwestern, and it did not go as well as I had hoped. Uh, Though they passed it, I still have a lot of work to do. In fact, uh, uh, I'm going to have to write a whole other chapter added to it, and it's going to be a challenge. I thought that I was at the top of the, the hill, so to speak, and if you've ever climbed mountains, you know what a false summit is. Uh, That's really what I ran into. And and then this week, I've been dealing with the the struggle of that. On the the next day, though, uh, our deacon body called a meeting and uh, really lifted me up, prayed for me, and just said, look, pastor, we believe that God's called you to this. We believe God's called us as a church to it, uh, to support you in this. So we want you to take whatever time you need over the next couple weeks just to get it done so you can finish. And that was an emotional high. And then, uh, of course, then I started working on it, and I got mad again. And then I went back down, and then we had staff meeting on on, on Wednesday. And then, uh, you know, then this, what just happened uh, last night, uh, I was texting my daughter, and Carrie and Forrest and their five kids were tent camping in Polidura Canyon State Park. I texted her about 4.30, and she said things weren't going real well. The kids were not being very nice. And, and then we finished the text. Well, about an hour or so later, I saw that two tornadoes had just hit Polidura Canyon State Park. One of them wiped out an RV park. Uh, there was a commercial RV park on the edge. One of them actually hit the entrance to the state park itself and did a lot of damage. So I texted Carrie, are you okay? And I didn't hear from her. So I waited an hour and texted her again. Now, if y'all know my daughter, she's like many of this generation. Her phone is never far from her body. And uh, didn't hear from her at 7.30, didn't hear from her at 8.30, didn't hear from her at 10.30 when I texted her or when I called her or I texted her husband. Wanted to call the sheriff out there, but felt like that's probably not the best thing to do because they were busy uh, taking care of all kinds of things. And, and I was able to find some news reports that said there were no deaths or injuries, though at one point there were six missing hikers in Polidura Canyon State Park. And so there was some concern there. Ultimately, got up this morning, still hadn't heard from her, reached out, still didn't hear from her. I came in, I told Kevin, I said, man, I don't know if I'm going to be able to preach. I'm, I'm going to do it, but it's going to be difficult. At 9.02, after the first service started, I did something I usually don't do. I left my, my phone on, and I got a message from her saying they were okay. Uh, they'd gotten an emergency warning. They'd gone to shelter. Uh, the, the park, that, the area that she was at, the, the tornadoes actually went just north of them. And so, praise God, you just, uh, this weight just fell off. And so, we, when we go through challenges in life, What I've learned over time is one of two things is going to happen, and you're either going to fold or the fragrance of Christ is going to come out. Let me just put it that way. When you you are squeezed, what's on the inside is what really is going to come out. Now, we're going to see uh, an image of this in two different ways. We're going to see people uh, who, who were challenged in life. But we're also going to, that handled it well and those that didn't handle it well in John chapter 12. So we're working through the gospel of John. This week we are on the story uh, right after the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. So Lazarus had died and uh, had been risen from the grave from, from, uh, by Jesus. And in chapter 12, 
there was kind of a, a dinner party going on where he was being, uh, the family had gathered in Simon's home. We learned from uh, Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 14, and Martha was serving there and, and Lazarus was there, and, and it seems like it was just kind of a, uh, almost a celebratory meal, a, a time where they'd gotten together after this difficult challenge they'd been through. So read with me the text, John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. The Scripture says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of perfume and pure and expensive nard and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial, for you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Then a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there, and they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one who had raised from the dead. But the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also, because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. Now, as we begin to walk through this, we're going we're to look at, at, at kind of a, a, a pair of points and then a pair of points uh, that, that illustrate one side and the other of a coin. So if you'll think of it that way. On the first side, what we see here is absolute generosity and devotion to Christ. And we see that from Mary in particular. Now, Mary is the one who, who, in other stories, we see Martha serving Jesus and Mary wanting to sit at the feet of Jesus and soak it all in. So it seems that the, the focus of Mary was always this focus of, of devotion and, and a spiritual connection and, and trying to, to, to hear what Jesus had to say and, and, and focus on that, that relationship with him. And now she is overwhelmingly grateful for what's just happened. Her brother, who was dead and in the grave for four days, has just been raised from the grave by Jesus. Now, you'll notice that we are only a few days out from Jesus' death. Uh, it's the beginning or six days before the Passion. So about a week before Jesus was going to die on the cross, we have this event. Jesus has come to Bethany, a small town right outside of Jerusalem. And while he is there, he's having this dinner. And Mary comes forward with this alabaster jar of expensive perfume. It's, re, it's, it's described here as pure and expensive nard. That perfume, uh, when, you, when you look into the, the, the history, it was a perfume that was made from the crushing of leaves of a particular plant, and the oil of those leaves would be gathered, and so it was a, a, a huge, time-consuming process. So this perfume was extremely expensive. We know it, not just because it says it right there in verse 3, but Judas points out that this perfume was worth 300 denarii. Now, a denarii was the basic pay for one day's wage for the average person in Jerusalem or in Judea. So, think of that. This is a year's salary when you're taking Sundays off. A year's 
salary is what that, the value of that perfume. Certainly, that had to be the most expensive thing that Mary had. The most valuable possession, like a savings account, you might say, that could be sold piecemeal, or it could be sold as a whole, a year's worth of salary. And she takes that perfume in this incredibly extravagant act and pours that perfume out on the feet of Jesus. Judas would say wasted. Mary would suggest that it's an absolute act of devotion. Now imagine what she has just been through. Her brother was dead. And now he's been raised. He's been given new life. Mary would not let anything stop her from giving her very best to the one who brought life back to her household. If we only had that same sense of surrender, to give Jesus our very best because he's brought life to our souls, because he's given us hope, and not only do we have a hard time not, not giving the tenth that he's called us to give that, that, that ultimately belongs to God in the first place, we have a hard time giving a tenth of our time. We, we have a hard time if we're asked to do anything other than to spend an hour or an hour and ten minutes in a worship service on one Sunday a week, one day a week. And yet, she... She made this extravagant display of devotion and surrender as she poured that oil out on Jesus' feet and, and, and gave the very best, the most expensive that she could give, not holding anything back for herself. And not only did she give the most costly, she also did it with incredible humility. She washed his feet with her hair. For her, a Jewish woman, that hair would have been her crown of glory. One of the, one of the most important things of, uh, that, that signified her beauty, her physical uh, self, her appearance. And she took her hair and she washed his feet with her hair. An incredible act of sacrifice, an incredible act of humility because of what Jesus had offered and done for her. If we could only catch that vision of, of that kind of just generosity and that kind of devotion to the one who has saved our soul from sin, who has washed us and made us clean, if we could only worship him in such an incredible, generous, devoted manner so that Jesus might, might the, 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 the air of that worship, the, the perfume of that worship would fill the household of wherever we go. I want you to see that next line there in verse 3. So the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. You understand that this is a family who one week earlier their home was filled with a stench of death? This is, a, this is Lazarus who, who in the very previous passage was, was stinking? You remember when Jesus was walking up to the tomb and he told him to roll back the stone and Martha said, hey, hold on there. He's been dead four days. He's going to stink. 
His body was already decomposing. The stench of death was reeking in that place. And now the, the, the fragrance of worship to the God of life has filled the house. When we bring our very best and we're broken before the Lord in worship and, and generous devotion to him, it fills the, the room with a fragrance of, of worship and of life. And then you have the opposite. You have the, 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 the man who has literally walked with Jesus for three years as part of that, the inner core. And what I mean by that is not the, the, the three that were closest to Jesus. The, the disciples are described as the 12 disciples. But there were a whole lot more disciples. There, there was over 100 of disciples. In fact, there were thousands that would come hear Jesus. There were over 100 at some point that would follow him. There were 12 that were identified by name that were with him all the time. One of those is Judas. He was an entrusted disciple who, who was the treasurer of the group. And, and this man, the one who was supposed to be a trusted disciple of Christ, did just the opposite. His life, what he does here, is characterized by greed and disloyalty. I tell you, I think one of the number one reasons that that happened to begin with is because even though Mary had drawn spiritually close to Christ, Judas had been physically in the proximity of Christ but had never connected spiritually. And one of the pieces of evidence right here is that Judas's focus was on money. If we're focused, if our life is focused on materialism and the material goods of, of what we have, that's going to lead us to selfishness that we see here in Judas. If we're more concerned about, about the things of this world, whether it's our finances or whether it's our, 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 our stuff or even our relationships to some extent, if we're caught up in the things of this world instead of focused on pure devotion to Christ, we're going to be headed down the wrong road and we're going to end up displaying this greed and selfishness. He was focused on money. In fact, the scripture says, uh, to, to, very, to begin with, he, he, he knows exactly how much that perfume's worth. He didn't have to, ha have to go find out. He knew the value of that perfume because he was focused on the material goods. And if our lives are focused on materialism, we will miss Jesus. If we're focused on the things of this earth, we'll miss the things of eternity. You cannot worship God and materialism. You cannot worship God and mammon. And so here you have a guy, Judas, who was close in proximity to Christ, but never close spiritually to him clearly because he, he never fully understood the importance of that spiritual call. It's, it's very similar to what we see in the Pharisees who they, they had all kinds of rules and regulations but they missed the spirit behind the rules. They knew that, that God was to be worshiped on the Sabbath, but they missed the spirit behind the Sabbath. So they came up with all kinds of ways. You know, how many pounds you're allowed to carry, how far you're allowed to walk. They, they were focused on the material things of this world. And if we're overwhelmingly focused on the material things of this world, it will lead us to greed and selfishness. And so it wasn't just that he, he knew exactly how much it was. We see that. But because he was caught up on that, he was wanting to keep it for himself. In fact, John points out that he wasn't really worried about the poor at all and how much of this money could go to help the poor. He was worried because that 300 denarii had been wasted and it hadn't come into the treasury where he could pilfer off the top. And so what an incredible display of, of, of missed focus and selfishness, which leads to betrayal. 
Here's the bottom line. Why would somebody who had walked with Jesus for three years betray Christ? Because he made it all about himself. And when you make life all about yourself, you can be around Christ, but not surrendered to Christ. Do you hear that? You can, you can go to church. You can give. You can be around other Christians. You can fill yourself with Bible studies. You can do all kinds of things that bring you in proximity. But if you're doing it for yourself, instead of pure devotion to the one who died for you and rose again, you'll end up selfish and greedy. And ultimately, when things get tough, you'll betray Christ. That's exactly what Judas did. And so Judas, after he makes that argument, he, he, Jesus responds and he says, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial, for you always have the poor with you, and you do not always have me. This is a tough passage to work through because Jesus tells us to take care of the poor. Jesus tells us that when you have fed the poor or you've helped those who are hurting, you have fed me, you have helped me. And yet what Jesus is doing here is, is he first comes in defense of Mary and he says, look, leave her alone. Her heart is in the right place. What made her heart in the right place? Why was it that Jesus so quickly came to Mary's defense? I think we see it in the tenor of this, of this passage. Her focus was on surrendering to Christ. See, you can go out and you can sell all of your material goods and give it to the poor. But if it's not rooted in your love for Jesus first, you're going to find that it's rooted in selfishness. You're going to want your name on the building. You're going to want your pat on the back. You're going to want to be lifted up because of what you've given and what you've done. If in Mary's case, she simply took her very best, broke open that alabaster vase, and poured it out on the feet of Jesus and gave him everything, not expecting anything in return. Leave her alone. It's, it, it reminds me of what Jesus said to Martha when Martha was up busy preparing the meal and, and she gets upset and Mary's sitting in there listening to Jesus teach and, and Martha says, hey, tell her to come help me. And Jesus says, hey, Martha, leave her alone. She's chosen the best. I'm not always gonna be here. Her first devotion was to worship and sit at the feet of Jesus. Now that does not mean that we don't serve the poor. Jesus over and over and over again points us to ministry. But if, if we start with, hey, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna do these good things, it always points back to us. But if we'll start on our knees, connecting with Christ, worshiping him, and let it be about him, he'll drive us out to meet the needs of the others, but it won't be about us. It won't be for our glory. It, it won't be to make us look good. It'll be for his so I believe Judas wanted him to look good. He was selfish. He wanted that for himself. Mary completely surrendered everything over to Christ. When we begin at the feet of Christ and wholly sell out to him, we'll become servants. We'll become ministers. But it will be rooted in our love for Christ and what he did for us and not our desire for glory. Not for our pat on the back. I believe that when Jesus responded to, to the disciples here, in fact, he didn't just respond to Judas. And that's an interesting thing that helps make this point in verse 8. He says, you 
always have the poor with you. And he used the plural you there. It's just like in English. If I say you, you don't know if I'm talking to one of you or both of you, right? Jesus said you in the plural. You disciples will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. So he wasn't just pointing out Judas. He was talking to all of them here. And I believe what he's pointing out is that and you're always going to have an opportunity to minister to the poor, obviously. Quit worrying about what Mary's done. Quit worrying about her sacrifice. Quit worrying about her calling. Quit worrying about what, what God's called her to do. Quit worrying about what she's given up. You're so worried about what Mary did that you're not doing what you're called to do. You're going to have plenty of opportunity to be out there taking care of the poor. But right now, you're so worried about her, you're looking over there at her, and you're not doing anything right. And, and that's what happens. We'll get so caught up and worried about how somebody else is serving or we think not serving Jesus that we'll focus on them and we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. I think that's what Jesus is telling them here. You've got plenty of opportunities. You let Mary do her job, you do your job, right? Our job is to give glory to God as we bow down and worship him and get up and serve him. We need to quit worrying about what somebody else's job is. When we come to the end of John's gospel, one of my favorite stories there, Jesus has just restored Peter. He's encouraged Peter to be a pastor, to feed the sheep, to stand up and preach, to be a leader. And he tells Peter, he says, Peter, come follow me. Peter's first thing he does, he turns around and says, well, what about John? He ain't doing nothing. And Jesus says, don't worry about him. If I want him to stay here till I come back, that's his business. You follow me. We've got to quit worrying about what everybody else is doing and surrender our lives and our hearts to Christ. Sometimes when we think they're not doing enough, it's because they're humbled before the feet of, and the, of the throne of God and they're worshiping him, waiting for their marching orders. If you've already got your marching orders, march. Shut up and quit worrying about them. Do what it is that you've been called to do. And, and I think that, that far too often, we, we, we're focused on others and not focused on Jesus. Mary was focused on Jesus. Judas was focused on himself and what everybody else was doing. So then you have this ultimate parade of selfishness. And because it's not just Lazarus, I mean, uh, Judas that's showing selfishness here. It's this crowd, of, this crowd of Jews come, first of all, because they want to see the show. The scripture says they're not just there to see Jesus. They're there to see Lazarus because he was raised from the dead. Let's go see the dead man that was raised. Can you believe that? That's going to be crazy. Now, the good news of that, some, of those, some people were believing in him. But what happens? Lazarus represented something. Lazarus represented victory over death. Lazarus represented life and truth. Lazarus represented that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was the great I am and that there was life in him. Lazarus represented all of those things that Jesus' enemies hate. Hear this. When you have been raised up by Christ, your, Christ, your life is filled with a fragrance of life and of truth. And your life points to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. By your words and by your actions, there's people that are going to hate you. They are not going to like it. And instead of trying to attack what you represent, they'll attack you. 
And so that's what you have here. The chief priests decide, we got to kill Lazarus. What was Lazarus doing wrong? He was breathing. Lazarus is walking around breathing, and because he's walking around breathing, they want him dead. They've got to get rid of him. They've got to wipe him off the face of the earth. The sooner they can get rid of him, the quicker the reminder of who Jesus is will be gone. So not only are they trying to kill Jesus, they want to kill Lazarus. Poor Lazarus done died once. He just came back to life. He's only been here a few days. They want to kill him because he's breathing. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like somebody's out to get you just because you're breathing? There's been a few times in life where I thought that it just made my wife mad that I breathed. Have you ever been there? Lazarus wasn't doing anything wrong, but he represented something that they hated. If you truly stand up for Christ and represent something that the world hates, you will become an enemy of the world. And so they wanted to kill him. Now, why? I believe the chief priests had the same issues in their heart that uh, Judas had in his. They were selfish. They were greedy. Scripture says here, they wanted to kill Lazarus because because of Lazarus, more people were believing in Jesus and they were leaving them. They they were walking away from their ministry. They were walking away from giving to their coffers and they were walking toward Jesus and his ministry and giving to those coffers. And so the chief priests were threatened. Their jobs were threatened. Their way of life was threatened. It was threatened by uh, the, 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 the Roman, their position in the Roman world was threatened. And so their position, their, their bank accounts were threatened by Lazarus. And so their desire was to destroy Lazarus. What is it that was at the root of their sickness, of their desire to destroy Lazarus, their selfishness and lust for power led them to want to get rid of anything that was in the way. There was something rotten already on the inside of the chief priest. Jesus in Matthew, during that last week of his life, he says, you're like a a dead man's tomb. You're, You're whitewashed on the outside, but inside are nothing but dead men's bones. He said, you same people, you're just like a cup that, that, that you don't wash the inside, you let it get nasty. You just wash the outside. Would anybody want to drink out of that cup? That's what you're like. You, you're putting on a show on the outside, but you're not taking care of your spirit. And what is, when, when we face adversity, what is on the inside comes out. When Mary was riding this roller coaster, even when Lazarus was dead, She looked to Jesus and said, Jesus, if you'd have just been here, my brother would have lived. But even now, whatever you say, I believe, because you're the son of God. What came out of Mary and Martha, even when their brother was dead, was not anger toward Jesus, it was love and devotion toward Jesus. And now that they're on the other part of that roller coaster, you're still seeing it. Absolute, abject surrender and worship. For those who were dead on the inside... When they faced adversity, guess what came out? The stench of death, selfishness, desire to destroy anybody that got in their way. Early on in my pastorate at First Baptist May, I built a relationship with a young man uh, who was a teenager, uh, helped uh, him come to faith in Christ, baptized him, saw him go through ups and downs in life, 
And we fished together. We uh, played tennis together. We had, a, we had a good relationship. I got a, a knock on the door one Sunday, Saturday morning that Susan got up and answered. And I woke up to the screams of Ethan's dad. Ethan's dad. Ethan was 17 years old, one week short of his 18th birthday. He's on his way to take an ACT test and had a tragic car wreck on a country road and died instantly. I got up, dressed, went out to the, the accident site, actually passed his parents on the way out there. The first responders had stopped his parents from going because they didn't felt like they needed to see that scene. And so I went out there, I ministered to a young lady who was a high school girlfriend of Ethan who had come up on the accident, turned around and I came back to, to their home. And when I pulled up in front of their house, I heard the cries of death. I heard that, that wail of someone who had just lost somebody tragically. And I went in, and, and as a young pastor, really not knowing what I'm doing, I just bowed down on my knees there and, and was with them, just present for a little bit. And then I said, let's, let me pray. Let's pray. And, and I was prepared. I didn't know how, but I was prepared to pray for them. But when I said, let's pray, Ethan's mom began to cry out a prayer to God. The sweetest most heart-wrenching but powerful prayer I've ever heard. It was real. But what came out of her in that moment was faith and trust and surrender and dependence. And later that morning I called the pastor who was previous to me. He was good friends of them of theirs also, and he and I were friends. And he was going to help me walk through this. This was going to be a tragic event for the whole community. Besides that family, Ethan's dad was a longtime school superintendent, and the whole community was hurting. And I remember telling Don that story, and, and Don told me, he said, you know, you never truly know what's on the inside of an orange until you squeeze it. If it's rotten on the inside, rotten juice will come out. But if it's sweet on the inside, the sweetness will come out. And out of her life that day came that sweet fragrance of Christ. Even in her pain and her suffering was a fragrance of life. Because she walked daily in an intimate relationship with Christ. So you can't wait until the tragedy comes. If you wait until then, it's too late. You've got you've to prepare. If you're walking with Christ... When that time of suffering comes, the fragrance of Christ will permeate the room. The fragrance of life will come out. If you're not walking with Christ, that also will be evident. But you have to make that decision now. You have to make that decision. Am I going to walk in that relationship with Christ? Am I going to choose to walk with him so that when life gets tough... He's what comes out. See, it's not a matter of when you're going to face troubles in this world or when you're going to face suffering in this world. You're going to face troubles. You're going to face suffering. You're, you're never going to hear a false gospel of, of health and wealth from me. I believe that God desires to fill our life with blessing and joy and peace, but sometimes he's going to give us that peace in the midst of the turmoil, in the middle of our circumstances. He's not, faith does not require that he take away your pain, it's that he walk with you through the pain. And so the question is not, if you face suffering, are you going to be ready? It's when you go through those tough times, are you going to be ready? 
Because ultimately, life is lived from faith to faith. Dr. Rainey, a pastor back when I was a Howard Payne student, he would say, you know, that passage illustrates the fact. It means that right now, you're either in the middle of a difficult circumstance and you know it. If not, you've just come out of a difficult circumstance and you know it. And if that's not the position you're in, if everything seems to be rocking along, going well right now, you're about to go through a time of suffering. You're about to go through a time of difficulty because that's just life. And so the question is, what on the inside of you is going to come out at that moment? Is, it, is your life going to be characterized by generosity and devotion and worship? Or is your life going to be characterized by selfishness and anger and disloyalty and death? It matters because what you choose today, if you choose to walk with Christ today, he changes you from the inside out.